What's up, Open Floor Glow? This is Ben Galber with the Washington Post. I am joined on the other line by Michael the Pod Pina of SB Nation. Michael, we actually have some real drama, I think, to dig into on this episode. Um, thank you to everyone, by the way, for all those emails about our most overrated people, coaches, execs, and everything else. We'll dig into your responses maybe on another episode. Michael, I thought after we kind of went on for you know an hour plus of heaters, we might take a step back from the overrated conversation today. Does that feel wise to you? I guess so. I, I, we It was a scorched earth episode. I'm glad it happened, but I'm also glad that we're moving on. I, to be honest, I don't believe you about the last part. I sensed <laughs> reluctance in your voice. It seems to me like you want to double down on the scorching. Am I right? No, I, I, no I'm a humble guy. Come on, Ben. Okay, good. Well... Um, we will try to uh, satisfy your urges by breaking up a superstar partnership today. How's that sound? <laughs> I can't wait. Uh, I'm sure everyone saw the report that came out from The Athletic uh, last week. There was a long, detailed story about the Utah Jazz, their response to um, Rudy Gobert's positive test, and just the madness and, and the frightening hours um, and passages of time You know, so- shortly after it. It's a great read. Everyone should check it out. I think the big takeaway pull quote that people saw, I'm sure, on social media was this idea that the relationship between Rudy Gobert and Donovan Mitchell at this point is not believed to be salvageable according to one source. Now, Donovan Mitchell publicly hasn't said much about Rudy Gobert. He did confirm in a Good Morning America interview that he was upset um, and that it took him a while to kind of get over the initial shock uh, after he found out that he was positive. Of course, there's been lots of questioning of Gobert's behavior Uh, before he tested positive in terms of touching all the other microphones. It's just sort of being a little bit reckless, and clearly there's some violated trust there. Now, Rudy Gobert said uh, in an interview Sunday with the Bleacher Report um, that they had not been talking for a while, but they did talk recently that the relationship might not be perfect, um, but he felt like both Donovan Mitchell uh, and himself were on the same page, kind of wanting to win a title Um, for the Jazz. So to me, the way I read this is Rudy's doing his best to kind of keep this thing together. He obviously feels bad. He's publicly apologized. He's donated tons of money to coronavirus relief funds, and he's taped public service address messages. He's going above and beyond here to kind of keep things together. And I think the big question is, uh, where's Donovan Mitchell's head at, right? He's publicly on social media all the time. You know, basically, he's had a month here to stand up in a big time way for Rudy and accept the apology and forgive him and try to bury the hatchet and move forward. And he just hasn't done it. Michael, let me start by asking you this question. Um, do you, did you think Mitchell would handle this thing differently uh, by now? Of course, it's an extraordinary situation. None of us knows how we would handle it if we were put in that exact moment. Uh, it is understandable that he would be afraid. He would be angry. Uh, he would be maybe even irate, uh, you know, given the circumstances and just the fear factor around this disease. Um, but uh, I, I guess from your judgment of him as a person and as a you know a player, uh, have you been surprised how this shook out? A little bit. I mean, it's a lot of time has passed, and for their relationship to quote not be salvageable, it leads me to believe that. There's more to the story, obviously, that we have not been privy to. Um, You know, I don't even think it can be confirmed whether or not Donovan gave it to Rudy or vice versa. Uh, So it it just seems to me like there's there's more here. Uh, Maybe there was some sort of personality conflict long before 
uh, the the pandemic, and this was just kind of what, what what sprouted everything to the surface and allowed Donovan to feel this sort of way and publicly, well, I guess he did say that he was a little bit irritated, so publicly uh, declare how unhappy he was with his teammates. So I don't, I don't know. It's it seems like if. He is still this angry, and Rudy's uh, interview with Bleacher Report, you know, he was not very convincing in trying to to quash the beef. He acknowledged it, as you said, and it leads me to believe that there's a lot, it's a lot worse uh, than than kind of what has been publicly revealed so far. Yeah, I haven't spent a ton of time around either one of these guys, but my first impression of both uh, has been positive. Rudy seems like a really, really nice guy. I think some people like to you know, tend towards, oh, is he a little bit soft or something like that? I mean, I just think he's kind of a genuine spirit. And, and I know he's been mocked for the crying and all of that, but it seems to me like a guy who wears his heart on his sleeve, who plays really hard, who understands what he's good at and has really maximized his strength on that end, who's built up his career here in the NBA. I mean, if you look back where he was before he got here five years ago to where his game's at now, it's a remarkable story of self-improvement and commitment uh, and I have a lot of respect for how he plays basketball um, and how he conducts himself, given that the league and and the style of play is kind of shifting beneath his feet. With Donovan Mitchell, to me, uh, it's like central casting from a, a small market franchise player, right? I mean, huge smile, great with the fans, uh, very good with the local media, uh, you know, flashy, exciting game, uh, sells lots of jerseys. Uh, hit the ground running from day one. And to me, he's always seemed like a pretty likable and and fairly low-key guy. I haven't ever gotten the sense that there's some just gigantic ego raging within him. And so when I was trying to kind of sort through this, what could be the possible tension points? To me, Michael, it comes actually back to basketball. You know, I'm not so sure uh, about uh, personalities. Uh, They were described as being fairly friendly and in close proximity, you know, before uh, the testing, like their lockers are near each other and everything else. Clearly, they're the two all-star players from that franchise. Um, Mm -hmm. But I I look at basketball, and I'm just wondering, like, is there a different way to play this thing, right? Like, if you imagine a scenario where Rudy Gobert isn't on the Utah Jazz, and since he was there first, they've been building the whole show around him, right? Um, And now you're trying to build around Donovan Mitchell. To me, it would start to look a lot more like a Houston Rockets situation, um, right? Or, or a Portland Trailblazers situation where you've got that lead guard installed as the main guy and everyone's supporting him. So that means, you know, versatile defenders so that he can have a, you know, a spread court to attack. Um, that means, you know, lots of length on the wings uh, and defensive mind of length to kind of cover for him so he doesn't have to do as much work on that end. And it also means the ball in his hands an awful lot. You know, his, his just usage rate up, shot attempts up, trips to the free throw line up, you know, drive and kick assists up. Like, I feel like that's sort of the scenario of the Jazz uh, that is out there potentially in the not too distant future if you just take kind of Rudy Gobert off the court. But I think the problem with Rudy Gobert He's so great at certain things, but there are some holes, right? Like his offense is basically entirely dependent and it's entirely paint bound. Um, So he's in the way, right? Number one uh, on offense. There's no stretch whatsoever. And then defensively, when he gets into space, we've seen him struggle with like the Warriors and the Rockets in the playoffs where he gets the happy feet. Guys are hitting pull up mid-range jumpers over him or, or getting by him going to the basket. Uh, and that becomes a real challenge for him. So I think that just his presence alone, he's such a domineering figure that you kind of have to build your whole team around him when he's on the court. And I could understand they're kind of becoming a, a natural tension from a basketball standpoint where Donovan Mitchell feels like he's ready for an organization. He's ready to have everything built around him. And then maybe 
Gobert isn't an ideal fit around him, if that makes sense. And I know we, we talk about similar things with like Embiid and Simmons all the time, right? And I think those guys get so much attention because they're in a bigger market and, uh, you know, they're, they, they've got some flaws to their games as well. And you can, you know, they, they were both like, you know, top three picks. So there's going to be more attention and scrutiny there. But I feel like there could be a similar level of dynamic where, you know, it works well enough in Utah. But it's also pretty easy to imagine a situation where it works better for Donovan Mitchell. And in that situation, Gobert's not on the team. What do you think? Do you, are you buying what I'm selling, Michael? I, I get everything that you're saying. And we had this conversation a little while ago. I, I, I kind of disagree with a little bit of it in the sense that usually when there's a star player who's ball dominant like Donovan Mitchell and he has a teammate who is also a star or an all-star caliber player, usually that player's skill set is going to be one that steps on his own toes, someone who also needs the ball, someone who wants to run pick and roll and play make and score and all that. But Rudy Gobert, I, I understand everything you're saying about his inability to stretch, and that is a little detrimental in today's league. But he's incredibly low usage. I mean, he's ninth on the team when the season ended, he was ninth on the team in usage, uh, does not need the ball, does not ask for the ball, does not want to post up, or maybe he does, but he doesn't have any opportunities to, and he accepts that role. Uh, Donovan Mitchell's true shooting percentage this year is exactly 56%, whether Rudy Gobert is on the floor or not, and there's a lot of different factors that go into that. But if you also look at what happened last year, uh, Mitchell's true shooting dropped below 50% without Gobert on the floor with him. So I think Gobert does help quite a bit just as this pick and roll guy who uh, has vertical spacing, sucks in help defenders. Uh, even when you drive to the basket and he rolls, the big, his own man, usually is petrified of the lob threat. So layups are there and Mitchell's field goal percentage around the rim is higher with Rudy Gobert on the floor for that reason. Usually when there's a big who can't stretch, the field goal percentage is lessened for guys like Donovan. But in this case, it, it's been higher. So no, that's a good point. They, and, and real quick, just to add, I mean, his gravity also applies to Utah shooters, right? Because of that lob threat, like mm -hmm. you know, you're not uh, you're not maybe rotating as quickly, or that guy doesn't want to leave Gobert, and sometimes you're maybe getting better shots in the corner because Gobert is on the court. Um, it's a little bit counterintuitive, um, but again, like I just wonder. Uh, another issue here is pace. Um, and that was mm -hmm. a fantastic counter argument by you. But the Jazz are playing like bottom five pace in the league right now. Like if you were imagining a dream situation, and again, this is not necessarily a team that's going to win the most games, right? Uh, I'm trying to kind of line this up as the team that makes Donovan Mitchell the happiest and the richest and the <laughs> the most you know the most attention, the most accolades, and everything else, right? Um, they're not a bottom five pace team, right? I mean, if if your lead guy is an athletic guard uh, who's you know been in the dunk contest, who's got handle. Um, don't you think you'd, you'd play a little bit different stylistically? Maybe. I, I Real quick, I want to touch on the defensive end of the floor before I touch on that. Um, everything that you said about Rudy Gobert not being able to switch and guard in space and and really, you know, being stuck into this one-dimensional aspect where he has to drop on the pick and roll, that is worrisome for sure, and we saw him get sliced up. But if you talk to just about any wing defender 
who's on a team with someone who is elite at rim protection, like Gobert or Embiid or any of these guys, they love playing with a player like that. Like he is a safety net right behind them. If they get beat, they're not worried. He makes them look good. So just looking at it from the lens of us, where we are, uh, you know, seeing the shifting league and uh, the aesthetic that's 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 evolving and how detrimental Rudy Gobert can be in a playoff setting. If you're a player, you really, I, I, from my sense of just talking to guys around the league, it, it's really not that uh, pronounced, if that makes any sense. No, look, I'm not trying to bag on this guy. I think he's a great player. I mean, he's a two-time mm-hmm. defensive player of the year for the reason, uh, for a reason. What I'm saying is, if your ceiling is capped out as a second-round playoff team or close to it, like maybe you're getting really lucky and making a conference finals. Um, it's a situation where, again, okay, like he's been a huge help to us, but we're never going to get over the hump with him. So what is the cost of losing him, right? Like maybe we step back in, in the short term, but can we get build back to a level and maybe the whole thing looks different and maybe Mitchell is happy and get back to the same level that you're at currently? Like to me, yeah, Rudy, sure. Go- Rudy Gobert is a classic player who raises your floor, but your ceiling's still kind of low on it, right? A little bit of like a DeMar DeRozan vibe uh, mm-hmm. back in Toronto. And so I can understand why his teammates would love him. I can understand why the organization would cam- campaign for him for Defensive Player of the Year every year. Um, I would understand uh, that, you know, he's unselfish, like you're mentioning, and that definitely goes a long way when one of your main stars doesn't need to have the rock and isn't demanding things and is willing to do all the dirty work that's a huge plus and it's really, really hard to find. And I think that's why there'd be a lot of interest in Rudy Gobert around the league if they were to make him available in trade. I Mm -hmm. I guess what I'm saying is I'm going back and saying, is it the cleanest fit between those two guys? Um, And if not, um, how much do they lose big picture long term if they do part with them? And you do have to keep in mind, so he's 27, uh, which, you know, he's got plenty of good basketball left in him. I do think centers tend to age out a little bit earlier than other positions. And then the big concern for me is, is playoff basketball going to go even harsher and, sh- and and sharper in the direction of super versatile play, right? Like you start to look at those Clippers lineups that they were going to be able to put on the court uh, in the playoffs this year. You look at what Houston was trying to do. Uh, I think the Lakers were probably going to counter with a lot of AD and LeBron as the kind of quote unquote four or five with, you know, three wings around. Um, that's life's tough for Rudy Gobert in that situation. Mm-hmm. Right? I don't I don't know how you really get around that. Yeah, I think the playoffs would be a concern. Um, I, I I think the greater concern when we kind of look at the Utah Jazz team uh, is twofold. One is, uh, you know, the Mike Conley addition just never worked out. And so that was kind of an issue for them all year long. And I don't even think we would be having this discussion if Mike Conley seamlessly blended in and he played at his borderline all-star level next to Donovan and next to Bogdanovich and next to Rudy. So can I ask you a a nerdy question on that? Sure. Do you think the transition from like Marcus Hall to Rudy Gobert, obviously very different style players, particularly with the stretch, was that a factor holding Conley back or did he just fall off a cliff, do you think? Or both? I think... Yeah, no, that's a really good point. I think most of it seems to be age-related and just speaking as optimistically as possible, a little fluky, like he's missing really tough floaters that he used to make and not finishing around the rim in ways that he used to, but it at honestly, the same time... My, doesn't it look like he just forgot to put his contacts in sometime? 
Like, <laughs> yeah. Or like he got the wrong prescription. Like he picked up his wife's prescription at the optometrist. And, mm-hmm. I, you know, that's honestly, that was like the, the best explanation I could come up for for his finishing this year. Yeah. Uh, and then, uh, yeah, that's a, <laughs> yes, that is a great explanation. He needs glasses. Um, this is why I'm a shooting coach, Michael. This right here. Yes. Yes. You're the best. Uh, and then I, I think like just kind of, first of all, because Saul thing was, is really interesting. And I, I don't know, you'd have to ask, I don't know if he's spoken about this anywhere. I have not read, but that is, that's a really interesting thing. And then the other concern that I would have if I were the Utah Jazz about Rudy Gobert is, is financially related. So obviously you're a small market organization, every dollar counts. And, uh, you know, this guy is going to be super max eligible, I think in the fall. So, you know, you were kind of running into a situation where you could upset him uh, because maybe he thinks that, you know, he's coming off an all-star season. He's entering his prime or smack dab in the middle of his prime. And he wants what he has earned, which is a Supermax contract. And if they're not willing to give it to him, which I think they would be foolish to give him that, um, maybe he gets, you know, a little muffed by with the organization. And then that leads to different kinds of issues down the line. So they might just be able to avoid that altogether here and kind of, you know, hide it behind the, the, the pandemic and all of the, the fallout from that in his relationship with Donovan Mitchell. So that could be, a, you know, a low-key blessing in disguise for the Utah Jazz, not to be like crass about it, but that's just that's just how it, it, it would be. No, I hear you. I mean, he's going to come up to get paid in 2021. He'll be like, I think, 28 years old at that point. So that con- contract is probably going to run four years. So now you're carrying him well past his 30th birthday. And like I was mentioning, I think the value of any individual center at this point is a little bit less than usual, but you've already kind of had it proven to you that your guy is going to really have a hard time getting over the hump. You're not really paying for you know a number one or number two guy on a title team. And then you're basically locking in that salary as the biggest number alongside Donovan Mitchell, who's going to be locking in a max rookie extension here on a similar timeline you're going to be in a pretty tough cap spot going forward, right? Like that's pretty much Mm -hmm. your guys. You really have to believe in that duo. And I just think that there's no doubt to me, Rudy Gobert has been their most important piece for the last five years. No question. But when I'm looking forward to the next five years, I would say the exact same thing about Donovan Mitchell. It's just two ships passing. This is going to be his organization. And that's why if I was the Jazz, and I don't say this lightly, I put a lot of time and thinking into it over the last month. This is not about like punishing Rudy Gobert for the positive test for the coronavirus, right? It's not about necessarily even appeasing Donovan Mitchell and saying, okay, man, here's the car keys for your franchise. It's more about just realizing that like there could be an underlying tension here that lingers. And if so, that's going to be absolute poison for everything you're trying to do. And even if not, you're going to be in a situation where I, I'm personally not convinced that they're an ideal basketball fit for where the game is going here the next five years, and they're going to be really expensive. So now you have to start making some difficult decisions. Michael, just real quick answer in one sentence or less. If you had to pick for the future to keep one, Mitchell or Gobert, who do you pick? Mitchell. Yeah. Like, it's no, not, d- no doubt about it. And not close, right? So if you're no. in that, that situation, you should be exploring trade options, I think. And Look, I hate to be the old guy who goes back to history. It's not a perfect analogy, but jazz fans will remember the simmering tension between Darren Williams 
and Jerry Sloan for years, right? Like it was just kind of like nipping and nipping. It just slowly gets worse, slowly gets worse. And the Jazz never picked a side on that one, right? They weren't like, oh, we're going to jettison Darren Williams so we can stick with Sloan's philosophy. Or they weren't like, okay, you know, it's time to forget the Stockton glory days and, and kind of urge Sloan offstage left and kind of turn things over to a more modern NBA and, and build everything around Darren Williams. They basically were just paralyzed and never made a decision. And it wound up <laughs> completely blowing up in their face. Sloan mm-hmm. abruptly uh, retires during the middle of the season. Unthinkable act for a competitor, uh, a guy who was around and consistent as long as him. And two weeks later, they trade Darren Williams under duress, basically, to the Brooklyn Nets. And in four of the next five seasons, uh, they're not in the playoffs for a team that was basically you know, a playoff mainstay for decades. So that can kind of just tell you the downside if you sit and wait and you sort of don't have a clear course for where you want to go or how you want to handle things, and you just try to keep things right even if it's a difficult situation. So I'm not predicting fistfights between Donovan Mitchell and Rudy Gobert at practice, not in the slightest, but I do think that you need to be honest. If tensions aren't great, uh, you need to be straightforward about that. Like you, you, you need to handle it. And clearly in this scenario, you would pick Mitchell uh, if you could. So Michael, this brings us to the big coup de gras here. All right. Um, we've laid out the case for how Utah could potentially move forward without Rudy Gobert. And again, I want to be crystal clear. I think they take a step back without him in the short term. It would probably take a year or two for them to sort of retool things, um, you know, after a potential trade here. But I do think in the long-term best interest of Mitchell and maybe having a more exciting franchise and, uh, you know, than maybe they've ever had, frankly. I mean, Utah has been kind of synonymous with, like, methodical and workmanlike, not exactly high-flying and, you know, super exciting, right? Um, mm-hmm. I think there could be a brighter future out there for them. But to get there, we need Michael the Pod Pina's top three Rudy Gobert fake trades. And Michael, I understand you put 72 hours into this. Is that right? Just diligent around the clock research to come up with the very best three fake uh, Rudy Gobert trade ideas that are out there? <laughs> At least 72 hours, Ben. At least. I have nothing going on here. So when you sent this exercise to me, I just was chomping at the bit. Yes, that's what I love to hear. Give me your best one right off the top. Let's hear it. Okay, I, I'm going to save my, my favorite for last. Um, The first one, though, I think you'll like the most because just all the concerns that you seem to have with Gobert uh, beside Mitchell, I think, get alleviated here. So uh, the first one and, you know, for everyone who is, you know, all the cap nerds out there, uh, the the salaries are basically uh, equitable and everything basically works. But this is just the kind of the rough stitching here. So uh, in this deal, it is with the Indiana Pacers. The Pacers get Rudy Gobert. The Utah Jazz get Miles Turner and Doug McDermott. I love it. I've actually was looking at, I had circled (laughs) Miles Turner as a potential kind of replacement target. So if you're Utah, the idea is you're going to go a little bit younger. You're going to go maybe a slightly more athletic and versatile inside. Um, But you're going to still stick with a center who doesn't need the ball, who's not going to be, you know, like, a real lead offensive option you know it's not someone you necessarily have to cater to you're getting an important shooter which i think is crucial um around uh mitchell i mean obviously you want to have as much space as possible in sort of this idealized version of of the future mitchell and then um you know i think 
I, we should mention uh, Zach Lowe had a really nice thing on uh, Doug McDermott today on his Luke Wall and All Stars column, so people should go check that out. Um, from the Pacers side, I guess that's where the question is. I think the Pacers fans would would put their hands up, Michael, and they'd say, "Do we have enough spacing if our four five is Sabonis Gobert?" Does that wind up conflicting, or does it give them just like an awesome interior defensive duo? Keep one of those guys on the court at all times, and you know their their goal isn't to, you know, win a title every year. Anyways, they basically just want to lose in the first round, hopefully in five games. That's that seems to be their organizational mission, um, and and Gobert would help them with that, right? Yeah, I mean, if you're kind of looking at it from the Pacers' point of view, it's it's. The offensive fit, as you alluded to, with Sabonis is very questionable. But the way I see it, you know, the Indiana Pacers are a team that's never really fallen in line with the guidelines put in place by analytics anyway. You know, they've, they've granted Miles Turner has more stretch than Rudy Gobert. So that's uh, that allows you to play or it makes it a little more um, accessible to play those two at the same time, Turner and Sabonis. But at the end of the day, like, I, I just don't think this organization would back away from the opportunity to upgrade so dramatically at that position because, I, I mean, I personally think that Rudy Gobert is just so much better uh, than Miles Turner and what it would do to their defense. It would just turn it into an absolute bear, and I think Nate uh, McMillan would love it. Um, oh, yeah. When I, yeah well, real real uh, quick, two, two points to follow up on that uh, briefly. Uh, mm-hmm. First... I, I love how the Pacers and Kevin Pritchard have kind of become the, the organization that just like rejects coastal elitism, basically. Like he's just leaned <laughs> all the way into being the captain of the heartland. And it's like if they're out there trying to make these super versatile lineups and, you know, uh, focus on offense and scoring, we're going to be the defensive minded grinder team. Like if they're out there chasing superstars, you know, we're going to be, you know, just signing like the TJ Warrens of the world and calling it a day, right? Like it's like whatever. The, the best practices, they go the other way, and it works for them. They make it work. And I think it really helps that they don't necessarily feel like the big-time championship expectations uh, mm-hmm. in that market. They just have uh, you know an expectation of, of respectability there, and they've done an excellent job of fulfilling that here over the years. Now, second point, there's too much negativity about Gobert on Twitter. Uh, no surprise there. But I do feel like well, you were just describing how he's a big upgrade over Turner. Like, I feel like everyone looks at Gobert and they're going to try to write him off as this guy who doesn't fit anywhere and, like, teams aren't going to want him and, like, big contract. And, uh, I mean, he's legitimately a guy where if you pencil him into the Pacers, you're feeling pretty good about, you know, a run at, like, the four seed, right? I mean, or you at least feel like you're in the mix there. Oh, and yeah. You, and if you put him on any of these lottery teams in the Eastern Conference, aren't those teams sort of like instantly into that bubble conversation, like whether they were there previously or not? Like, we're, I'm not saying he's a top five game changing level guy, but if your defense really sucks, Gobert will have an, a major impact, like immediately, and it, it will help your team, especially uh, you know in, in the weaker conference, um, just perform differently. Like I kept trying to picture. Go bear on the Chicago Bulls, like go bear on the New York Knicks, and like personally, mm-hmm. I would feel I feel bad for him, right? Like, it's can he, is he going to be able to keep his mentality and his spirit up? I mean, there's a lot of good culture stuff going on there in Utah, right? But um, I do think that there would be a transformative impact in terms of the respectability of their defense, um, and that's why I like that Indiana fit you came up with. Yeah, um, I mean, before I when I sat down to kind of do this. 
I was looking at all the teams that would just straight up want or need someone like Rudy Gobert, and there's a lot of really good teams out there that are you know just aren't in a position to trade for him. Uh, and so it was just kind of not realistic. Like uh, I think even with how the Houston Rockets season has turned out, I don't think that they would be like, no, we don't want Rudy Gobert. The Boston Celtics would, would not say, you know, thanks, but no thanks. Um, the Los Angeles Clippers can use a big, the Dallas Mavericks can use a big. So there's like good teams out there that want him. They just, it just, you know, formulating an actual trade is too difficult. Uh, so well, And also uh, like they, they might like him in theory, but your point about the, the salary was right on. Do they like mm-hmm. him? enough to, to make him a core piece of like you know a big two or a big three going forward like for the Celtics I mean there's already a lot of credit card bills coming <laughs> you know Jalen sure, Brown yeah. Jason Tatum Kemba Walker like it makes sense that they would want Rudy Gobert everybody's trying to fill their hole at center are you going to want Rudy Gobert on a max number right and 100 percent yeah in two years and there's there's kind of no way to do it what, what were some of the good teams you thought could actually fit for him because I was having the same thing the only one I kind of came up with was like Toronto, where maybe he's the heir to Mark and Surge there, and like they try to find a way to spin that forward. Um, I mean, it's but hard even to make then, it, yeah, yeah, yeah. But even with Toronto, like I think that would be a, a mega financial concern because that's an organization that wants Giannis. So, like, and they just paid Siakam, they're going to have to pay Fred Van Fleet most likely. So, like, it, yeah, the, where are you going to pay your money? How are you going to allocate those resources? Toronto on court, yeah, sure, that's wonderful, fits great. Uh, I, I agree with what you said about him filling the air there, but uh, you know, financially, that's where it just gets so tricky. Great point. So um, we are looking at sort of maybe second tier teams or below in terms of your your tr- your mm-hmm. big trades. Is that right? Pretty much, yeah. Um, and I, I mean, I think that lines up with who he would help the most too. You know, yeah. Like as we're going back to like, what's your ceiling as a team with him? I, I think it makes more sense for him to be a floor raiser on a team that's not as good. So what is your number two fake trade? Okay, this is for your favorite team. You're going to absolutely love this. Oh, uh, boy. Oh, boy. <laughs> are, are you about to make a Twin Towers of Rudy Gobert and DeAndre Ayton? Is that what I'm smelling down here? No, no, I'm not fo- I'm not a fool. Um, this is uh, Utah and the Brooklyn Nets. Oh, okay. And, and so the, the, the package that... Utah would get it's built around Jared Allen and Karis LeVert and for right now Karis LeVert has like a poison pill situation with his contract so this would have to be done after this year officially ends and his next contract kicks in but beyond that the money I'm pretty sure works good enough and there might have to be like some small pieces thrown in here and there to to have it fit but what are your thoughts just uh, right off the bat Brooklyn gets Rudy Gobert Utah gets Jared Allen and Karis LeVert two thoughts uh number one we had a i think instagram user or an open floor glow member send me this exact idea michael so i want to give him <laughs> credit for like being ahead of the curve on it amazing vision by you i really wish i had your name i'm sorry about that but i'm sure you know who you are point number two uh okay so does rudy gobert play power forward next to deandre jordan or does he come off the bench behind deandre jordan how are the nets gonna play that (laughs) so as i'm kind of rationalizing this one the first sentence that i wrote here in my little google doc is uh here's a fact the nets aren't going to win a championship with deandre jordan as they're starting in center it's an impossibility so deandre jordan is either coming off the bench or something happens where kyrie irving and kevin durant are, are convinced by Brooklyn management, their agents, whoever, that DeAndre is just not what they want right now at this point in their career. 
yeah, the thing is, I just don't see those guys turning on DeAndre, unfortunately. And the way the season played out, like protecting his minutes and all that stuff was such a bad look. It makes me a little bit nervous. That would be my big hang-up because if you're bringing in uh, Gobert, your big three is set. Your spending power, as we're describing, is basically mm-hmm. set. I don't, I don't know about any pre-existing relationships between those guys. I already worry about clicks, in, um, and that's with the QU, um, not page view clicks, uh, in Brooklyn uh, with KD and Kyrie. I would honestly feel a, a tremendous amount of sympathy and just kind of pity for Rudy Gobert if he got traded to that environment because I just don't know how well that would work kind of uh, from a you know culture standpoint uh, and from a locker room standpoint because um, I do think that he's going to sort of be un, you know facing some you know relatively unfair or completely unfair stigma coming out of the situation and I just think that could be a difficult environment to kind of get through with that. Um, Basketball wise, I love the fit. Somebody has to play defense. Somebody has to mm-hmm. cover up for Kyrie Irving. KD's going to be coming off a serious injury, and you don't want him going as hard defensively as he did during his prime years three years ago. Um, so, you know, to me, I, I think it's a it's a really nice fit there. Jared Allen would be uh, a decent piece going back. I'm not sure I would be in love with that piece if I was Utah in terms of trying to get towards the. Uh, the more Mitchell version of that team that I was describing earlier, but he's certainly valuable, you know, uh, affordable, uh, playing above his production level and, you know, capable of handling, you know, real minutes for them. Um, I guess it comes down to how much you love Levert for this trade. If you're the jazz, right? Yeah. And I mean, personally seeing him up close when healthy, I mean, he should have been an all-star last year. Like, he's a very, very good basketball player. He's super young. He's on a great contract. If I'm Utah, I get Karis LeVert. Well, let me first start with Jared Allen because uh, I think I might be a little higher on Jared than you are. Um, You know, seeing him warm up before every game. Like, he's someone who uh, has the aspiration and potentially the touch of being someone who can, you know, knock down a corner three someday very soon. And that's, like, way more valuable offensively than uh, some of the things that Rudy Gobert cannot do. So I think that just in terms of fit and, and age and, again— like Man, it, w- it would be so perfect if both Karis LeVert and Jared Allen went to Utah and then just immediately blew up as, like, big-time players after the way this Brooklyn Nets <laughs> situation has gone. That uh, would be so funny. Uh, could Karis LeVert and Donovan Mitchell be a poor man's version of Harden and Westbrook? Is that possible? The way I see it actually is a physically larger version of CJ McCollum and Damian Lillard. Oh, that's okay. kind of a little stockier. Is that what you're trying to say? <laughs> yeah, I mean, when I look at Donovan, he's the heir apparent in my eyes to to Dame in terms of. You know, checking all the boxes of a small market superstar. And you kind of laid out all the reasons and all the qualifications for what that type of player is. But you add Karras, who, you know, I think CJ McCollum is really good and, you know, one of the better peer scorers in the league, very creative. But like, Karras Lavert has the size um, to, I think, be a more impactful two way player in a playoff setting. 
And he's also super herky-jerky and creative and can get his shot off just about any time he wants. So when he, if he were to stay healthy beside Donovan and kind of accept the role of I am the I'm kind of like the 1A or the 1B here, that could be an incredibly potent offense. And, I mean, have Boyan Bogdanovich as your third option, that's just a really, really difficult team to defend, particularly in the system that Quinn Snyder has, has, uh, has instituted there. Okay, we're going to do a little mental journey here, Michael. I want you to pretend that your name is Kyler Tyler, okay? And you made your own (laughs) personal fortune as a private ski instructor at Vail. And then, you know, after you kind of settled down, you became, and you you founded a very lucrative CPA firm in suburban uh, Salt Lake City. And you've been a Utah Jazz season ticket holder now, going on your 13th season. And your ticket rep calls you and says, hey, we're just hoping that you're going to, you know, come back in. This coronavirus thing has passed. We're trying to lock you in for, you know, your, your next year. We've got Karis LeVert and Donovan Mitchell as part of an explosive backcourt. Or guess what? We're running back that age-old duo of Donovan Mitchell and Rudy Gobert. And we're, we're going for it again this year. Which one gets you? more excited, more likely to whip out that credit card and give the money to the to the Utah Jazz. I I mean, I'm more excited by the unknown, I think. So, if I am this hypothetical fictional character, no, you are. It's no if, you are. Okay, okay. Um I, I would go with uh I would go with Karis LeVert and and th- give me a little Jared Allen. Let him, you know, he's a very interesting personality. I'm I'm excited about that. I honestly am. Yeah, I mean, if your starting lineup is Mitchell, Levert, Bojan, Ingles, and Allen, I mean, I'm not sure. I I don't know if I would actually put that under the headline squad goals, but it's squad goals (laughs) adjacent. That's kind of a team, right? It's good. I I honestly think that that that's a top five offense in the NBA, assuming that Donovan Mitchell takes a step forward, assuming Karis Levert stays healthy and continues to develop. That's a really difficult team to defend, man. Yeah, and I put this in my Washington Post newsletter. If you guys want to read my whole exploration of the Rudy Gobert uh, trade options and so forth, uh, go ahead and and it's really the the logic behind why you might trade them. Check that piece out. But I did make the comparison to Damian Lillard and C.J. McCollum for the Utah Jazz, where you don't want to design this entire thing about what do the fans want to watch, right? But if you're not a championship contender and you can get back to that same level in a different version, and maybe it is a little bit more fun uh, and exciting brand of basketball, more modern brand of basketball, there's real benefits to that. That's a real virtue. Like you look at the Blazers retooling from Lillard and Aldridge. It's a good pairing, not a perfect pairing. And then you retool to Lillard and McCollum and, you know, spread around those guys. And, you know, they've got some just incredibly indelible moments from uh, postseason victories, some crazy high uh, scoring explosions. And I think when you're a small market team, that you know really solidifies the bond between your organization and the fan base um that excitement factor that love factor and the personality factor so i can get behind it i don't know i didn't know i was speaking to the vice president of the karis levert fan club i didn't i didn't quite know that going in michael but come on you know um, he's good stop i'm I'm not hating on him i just i I, you like him (laughs) a lot clearly but i think there's something to this idea as well and so i'm actually going to give you big time praise for both your fake trades i came on here wanting to rip them apart as always but you're Mm -hmm. pretty much hitting it out of the park now i'm nervous though because you said you said you were going to save your favorite for last yeah what is it so I just love trades like this. They're basically 
one-for-one swaps where the players have nothing in common. They're they're kind of like inversions of each other. And it makes me think for football fans out there, the, the I forget what year it was, but when Champ Bailey was traded for Clinton Portis, it's like a running back for a cornerback. Both are really good, but they just like, it, it, you're not really replacing the other one and getting, uh, in making the transaction. You're just kind of like elevating a, a separate part of your, your team um, and your team's ability. So here's the trade. Uh, Sacramento Kings get Rudy Gobert. And the Utah Jazz get Buddy Healed, straight up. You may <laughs> break your brain. <laughs> I hate Buddy Healed. That's a problem. Like, no, I, I shouldn't use that word. Hate. I don't hate Buddy Healed. I just do not like his game in any way. And this is like hilarious. I feel like this fake trade is the perfect counter argument to literally everything that I've been saying because I think <laughs> if you put. Donovan Mitchell and Buddy Heald together, that's like a 17-win team. I think Buddy Heald would drag him down that bad. I'm I'm exaggerating. First of all, a team like Sacramento is exactly who should be trying to pry Rudy Gobert out of Utah right now. Classic mm-hmm. situation. We're desperate to raise the floor. We just need one playoff appearance so that Vivek can say he's a good owner, even though everybody knows he's not. Like. It's a perfect destination for Rudy Gobert. I guess my question, though, can they put together a slightly more enticing package than Buddy Heald? I, I just think Buddy Heald's a losing player, Michael, flat out. Oh, I mean, I, no, I, no, no, no. Come on, man. Why do, what do you have against Buddy? His entire career, the fact that he lied about his age coming into the draft? <laughs> Come on, Michael. If you can't even fill out the forms. Okay, so, I mean, last year he was a catalyst on... One of the more pleasant surprises in the entire league. Uh, Fit into that system incredibly well. I mean, you're talking about wanting the Utah Jazz to play a lot faster. Like, there's no one better for an up-and-down tempo team than Buddy Heald. Michael, you can't use the word catalyst with Buddy Heald. Do we say that a car that's, like, pulled over to the uh, side of the road, sputtering, that's (laughs) out of gas with... With, like, flat tires has been catalyzed. We don't use that. I mean, Okay, on. he had one of the best shooting seasons in NBA history last year, Ben. And I, I know uh, he did. I know he did. Yeah, yeah. He's did, very good. Three-point shoot, shootout champion, defending champion. Um, He is, right? Did I just make that up? I'm pretty sure he won in the All-Star weekend. It feels like a thousand years ago. I just said that off the top of my head, but I'm pretty sure he won. Pretty um, sure he won, too, but I hate to break it to you. You get zero points <laughs> for winning basketball <laughs> sure. games. We're sure. taking on the three-point contest title. But, um, no, he's an incredible shooter. He would be better playing around talent. We can agree on that, right? I think that he is sort of like – to me, he's like the archetype of a guy where he goes to a bad market and just hit, dies, right? Or his impact is not shown because I don't think that he was in a situation like coming in where he was going to be able to define a winning environment. I just don't think he has that leadership personality. The money hands thing kills me. I know it was a joke, but I think it is kind of representative (laughs) of who he is as a guy where uh, he's not thinking about the team necessarily in that environment. He's thinking about himself, doesn't play defense. I don't think he's a very good passer. I don't think, I don't think he's the most um, high IQ, you know, kind of manipulator of the game, if that makes sense, where, uh, I think that there's a few things on the court that he does very, very well, and then there's enough things that he doesn't do well that like it winds up just basically being a wash. Like almost every night, I feel like he just cancels himself out. Like he just he locks himself up, you know, in terms of his impact, and he goes home. And what do you know? The Kings just lost again. No, I I hear that. It's just like 
sometimes when you take someone, first of all, like, it's the Sacramento Kings, let's be clear. So I can't blame any one individual for, except for the owner, uh, for um, their just general malaise over the past however many years. So I feel like if you take Buddy, who he did play for a different team earlier in his career, but you know has spent the, the glut of his prime in Sacramento. If he were in Utah, if he were next to Donovan Mitchell in a completely different culture... Granted, they will not have Rudy Gobert anymore, so they will have to play a completely different style of basketball, and they're not getting a center back in this trade, so they're going to have to use an exception to kind of pick somebody up off the scrap heap, and their defense is just going to—it's going to—it's going to go down, for sure. Uh, But when I look at them offensively and what can happen here, I—I love—why I love Buddy Heald is— he excels off the ball. He just scrambles around, sprints the baseline, never gets tired. That's going to be great for Donovan Mitchell. That's super complimentary, spaces the floor, does not need touches in the same way that uh, even someone like Karis LeVert would. Uh, so I just think that there's a, a long-term uh, sign of prosperity with those two together. I think the synergy can be really nice. Uh, on the other side of it, uh, for Sacramento's case, as you well, said, in Sacramento's case, it's a no-brainer. Um, and that's my biggest problem with this. There's no way Vlade makes this good of a trade, Michael. <laughs> well, 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 so, okay. So, like, when I look at it for for Sacramento, like, you have De'Aaron Fox and you have Marvin Bagley, right? So you kind of laid out the case for why Donovan Mitchell would not be happy with Rudy Gobert as his starting center. Well, what does this do to De'Aaron Fox? I mean, I'm a little higher on it. I think that he would be a really good pick-and-roll partner. Who would He would for sure solidify the defense, which has been a little bit of an issue. But there's not it's not like a it's it is a no-brainer i guess to to make a transaction like this particularly because buddy healed is so unhappy and you're going to be uh re-signing presumably bogdan bogdanovich this summer and so uh, what kind of sparked the idea here is that they're not going to keep fox bogdanovich and buddy healed one of those three is going to have to go and it's going to be buddy healed so I, i think that there could be some sort of chemistry issue there and then you know throwing marvin bagley into the mix who basically missed this entire season with injury like I, I don't know what the fit is there. He's not like a, a huge stretch big. So yeah, I, I, I hear you on that. But look, I mean, this is going to be the most winning player they've had since before the Cousins era, right? Like, I mean, you're just saying like who's the most valuable <laughs> guy? You're going. No, it's yeah. true. You're going. Yeah, back, no, yeah. You're going back more than ten years to find a guy, so you can figure out the fit stuff regardless. I mean, they need kind of a foundation piece for a really long time. I definitely don't think you're at the stage of Marvin Bagley's career where you're turning down big time proven talent to work around him. Um, no disrespect to him. He's got to stay healthy and stay on the court first. I mean, you could sort that stuff out later. Hear you for sure on the fit with uh, Fox. And primarily this idea of like how fast should the Kings be playing too, right? Because you're going to probably slow it down if you have Gobert. Is that a clash, right? Um, It's another thing to work through. But look, they've got a million questions to work through. I didn't really understand this team at all this year. I don't think they lose anything if they trade uh, healed. So I would want that package kind of sweetened up. if I was Utah before I did that deal. But another fascinating one, and again, to underscore, I think teams like the Sacramento Kings are exactly the type of team that should trade for Gobert because he's just a floor raiser. Hey guys, what's up? This is Ben Golliver with Sports Illustrated's Open Floor Podcast. Keeping a healthy lifestyle should be easy, right? You eat veggies, drink green smoothies, exercise to get your heart rate up, and do yoga to bring your heart rate down. Woo. 
Well, maybe not so easy, but there is something that helps improve everything and you can do it with your eyes closed. It's sleep. Sleep Number knows what it takes to sleep your best. The Sleep Number 360 smart bed lets you choose your ideal firmness, comfort, and support on each side, your Sleep Number setting. It's the perfect solution for couples. These beds are so smart, they respond to your every move and automatically adjust to keep you sleeping comfortably all night. Proven quality sleep is life-changing sleep. And now, for a limited time during the Memorial Day sale, save $1,000 on the new Sleep Number Special Edition Smart Bed, a queen now for only $17.99. You'll only find Sleep Number at Sleep Number stores or by visiting www.sleepnumber.com. That's www.sleepnumber.com. All right, Michael, I think we beat this topic into the ground. It's so nice sometimes to be able to really dig in deep on stuff we probably wouldn't talk about to that length uh, here during the uh, the shutdown. But uh, there you have it. Every Utah Jazz fan who's emailed me over the last four years saying, you don't talk enough about our team. <laughs> we just broke up your superstar duo, unfortunately, but at least we gave you a lot of airtime. Michael, we got a really fun question here, uh, and we only have time for a couple today. But this one comes in from uh, Dave in New Zealand. And he emailed openfloormail at gmail.com, openfloormail at gmail.com. And he writes, listening to you guys today, you were talking about the double nickel game, Michael Jordan versus the New York Knicks. What baffled me was that after watching the game, you guys didn't give enough love to Patrick Ewing. He was incredible down the stretch, but all you were talking about was Michael this, Michael that. This got me thinking. Back when Tatum was a rookie, I recall you guys labeled him 12-time Tatum making fun of the fact that the Boston Celtics media thought he was going to be such an incredible all-star for his entire career. Only the next season comes around and you guys conveniently forget your premature label when he was having the post-rookie year blues. Do you guys just see what you want? Do you get your predictions of greatness wrong or right? I think you guys need to you know, keep it real and lay out some of your best predictions that you've come to fruition and your worst predictions that have blown up in your face. So Michael, um, I think with the Tatum thing, the 12 time Tatum, first of all, we were tongue in cheek mocking the level of over the top (laughs) hype that was building around Tatum at summer league when he didn't really have that great of a summer league. Um, Now, certainly we gave him credit for one time. I think I was one of the first people to say he had to be an all-star this year. Not exactly like an outrageous take for me, but I said it pretty early. Um, is he going to be able to get to 12 in the Eastern conference? Sure. I mean, I think there should be a, you know, probably some sort of a a mathematical (laughs) formula, you know, 12 time in the East is probably equivalent to maybe four time in the West. Um, I'm sure there's some sort of a, a ratio like currency exchange rate that we could come up with. Um, but no, the guy's been great and he's just been a fun, uh, you know, podcast, uh, muse, I would say for the last three or four years. I'm not saying I got that one wrong. But, Michael, I am ready to admit uh, a few mistakes that I've made along the way. Uh, did you have any that you want to get off your chest or anything you want to take uh, victory laps for real quick? And we don't need the full rundown, but just maybe, uh, you know, quick hitters. Yeah, no, I mean, I get because I don't really watch uh, too much college basketball and all the international guys I, I, have, I know absolutely nothing about heading into the draft every year. Um, I'm going to go with uh, one recent draft where – I whiffed so terribly on one prospect, and I feel like I hit on another who was, uh, I think, had uh, lower expectations across the board than the ones I was placing on his shoulders. So the first prospect who I just completely 
completely missed on uh, was Dennis Smith Jr., who I wrote a... Now, I should preface by saying I, I want to... I have like a... I guess my pinky is hanging on to the to the handlebars of the bandwagon right now with him um, because he's been in he hasn't found the right situation and I think a lot of basketball well, is opportunity. But let, Michael, let, 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 let me, are, are the other are, are your other four fingers hanging on to your passport because you're going to need to go to China if you believe in this guy? Come on now. <laughs> uh, shout out to Dennis Smith Jr. Um, I wrote at the time uh, I wrote this reported feature about. About him and how I, you know, I thought he was going to be the next Russell Westbrook, and his athleticism was off the charts, and all he needed was to figure out how to hit a pull-up three. And I was talking to all these people who were in the gym with him throughout the summer and uh, and the off season, preparing for the draft, and how his shot was different and it looked great. And yeah, I was bamboozled on that one. Um, the player in that draft who I. Uh, I wrote a column about basically pleading for the Boston Celtics to take him uh, with the third overall pick, uh, and I'm kind of glad they didn't, (laughs) is Jonathan Isaac. And with Isaac, basically, you know, I wrote at the time that I thought he would be a perennial defensive player of the year candidate. I thought he was someone who, if you were the Celtics and if you wanted to take down Giannis eventually, you're going to need someone like that with that body and those instincts who could hang with him in single coverage and 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 beast him as best as possible. And Jonathan Isaac has, you know, from defending Pascal Siakam in the first round of last year's playoffs to just everything he did this year before uh, suffering a really serious knee injury for Orlando, uh, you know, he looked like someone who was going to be a lock to get on the all-defensive team. So I, I pat myself on the shoulder with that one a little bit. Now, granted, he was projected to be a lottery pick, so it wasn't out of this, like, out of this, uh, out of the world, uh, pie in the sky optimism on my part but I thought he was going to be really good and I had my eye on him just because of the physical tools and so I'm going to give myself a little bit of credit for that one awesome I love it I'll I'll run through a couple quickly I mean first of all uh Dave the biggest one for me is Kevin Durant you know I started my whole career probably wouldn't even been writing if I had been arguing for Greg Oden over Kevin Durant so I'm going to take that as my all-time biggest win lifelong achievement award um with that said, there's been some other misses in the draft. I was trying to think, is there anything like in particular that ties the guys who I've I've been like higher on than reality has turned out? I was really in on Andrew Wiggins, and I was really in on Ben McLemore too. Do you remember the hype around Ben McLemore when he mm-hmm. was coming out? Because he was like super young, athletically gifted. Um, coming out of Kansas like, yeah right it seemed like he had that natural scoring ability I mean obviously he has the best name in the world first name um, so it was one of those situations where like uh, you know I missed on those two guys for similar reasons um, and you know it, it's difficult to kind of course correct against that um, but I just think both of them you know wound up being a lesson in like looking for guys who are just like absolute just crazy hungry dogs you know when it, when it wait, comes wait, to, can I, can approach I, to the game can I ask real quick? Were you, were you high on Josh Jackson? We're just going to make the the University of Kansas trifecta here. 
No, I mean, Josh Jackson had so many red flags. I was way out on Josh Jackson. I was also <laughs> older at that point, which I think, you know, like the red flag stuff actually mattered to me. When you're younger, you're like red flags, who cares? When you're older, you're just like out there searching for red flags, like a Chinese Communist Party me- meeting. But um, as soon as he went, as soon as he went to Phoenix, it was like, all right, this guy's career's over. Um, and you know, retroactively, it's been great to just bet against every Phoenix Suns draft pick because it works out nine times out of ten. Um, <laughs> in terms of like other kind of wins, non-draft related, I'll just say a couple quickly. I wrote a column like months before Anthony Davis's uh, public trade request, where I was sort of like running through the intricate reasons why I thought that he and LeBron would be a good pairing. Obviously, there was a lot of pretty, you know, <laughs> surface level, like very, very obvious reasons why that group would work. But I kind of went into a lot of detail about like what this opportunity would mean for him, et cetera, et cetera. And watching it play out this season, there was a number of moments where I was like, man, like I thought this was going to be a home run for this guy. And this is actually like better than a home run. Like you could just see with his body language towards LeBron, kind of like the the older brother, little brother relationship that they developed. So I think that was one that I've always felt, uh, you know, pretty good, like I nailed. But my biggest prediction that was like exactly right you remember the Kyrie Isaiah Thomas trade? Um, we had to do like do fake, I? Yes, I do. <laughs> we we had to do fake Kyrie trades uh, for SI on a roundtable, and I nailed it precisely. I said Isaiah Thomas Crowder in a pick, and when it went up, of course, I got all sorts of outraged uh, responses. Oh, that sounds crazy! And then it actually happened, so I had to be the guy to like really like uh, wave the Kobe Altman flag and be like, "This guy nailed it, perfect package. Like, what more could you have wanted? This is great." Because I had just said the same thing like three weeks previously. So it's possible <laughs> that he got the idea for that trade from the SI roundtable. I'm not taking credit for it, but that was one of my bigger hits. Um, any other memorable misses that have haunted you? Oh, another one from a miss standpoint. I never bought the Raptors last year down to like the bitter end. And there was absolutely a lot of rationalizing going on uh, up there in Toronto when I'm watching those games thinking, oh my God, these guys are really about to do this. And, you know, I'll I'll tip my hat to all the Toronto termites. You know, I I wrote like a lip service piece about the Raptors heading into the playoffs where it was just like, all right, I got to cover my bases and like pretend that this has a chance. I'm watching the four bouncers go in against Philly and I'm like, oh my God, of course. I'm watching Milwaukee get out to the 2-0 lead. They're not even playing that well in that series. I'm like, thankfully, Giannis is going to take care of these guys. And what do you know? It went completely the other direction. Katie never really gets back on the court to solve things. And I just kind of had to eat that one all the way. Um, so that was obviously their their day in court against me after five years of bullying or whatever you want to call it. So congratulations to the Raptors fans. But that was certainly another high-profile miss that I will own publicly for our guy Dave. Michael, any other uh, big losses or wins that you want to uh, tout here real quick? I mean, honestly, there's too many to count. If I start, then we'll just continue recording for the next seven hours. Um, But I I will just say a real quick anecdote. Like, uh, before the Mo Bamba draft, so I guess that was Luca and Trey Young and all those guys, um, a really smart talent evaluator, I remember him telling me, uh, who works for a a, a well-respected organization in the NBA, told me that Mo Bamba was going to be the best player in that draft. He was going to be a perennial defensive player of the year. His body was like nothing that he had ever seen. They loved the wingspan. It was perfect for where the NBA was going. Uh, Had some touch on the outside jumper. Just he was drooling over this guy. And as we've seen, you know, Mo Bamba is, 
I, it's too early to completely write him off, and I think he showed some flashes in different areas of his game this year that he didn't as a rookie when he was hurt, but he's not a transcendent force by any stretch so far, and he has a long way to go before he's even someone who can start at his own position. So I just think it's like when it comes down to it, no one knows anything when it comes to the draft, when it comes to uh, – because this guy's a lot smarter than me when it, when it comes to Italian evaluation and everything like that. So just keep in mind if you're wrong about something NBA-related, that's a good thing. That is why we're so fascinate, fascinated by it and why it is such a tantal, tantalizing uh, product for us all to consume. So wait, who's Mo Bamba? <laughs> <laughs> just kidding. I actually like Mo Bamba coming in too. I thought – uh, okay, maybe he he could be in this like you know, better than just the diver role because he could maybe space out and, and shoot it a little bit. And like you don't want him to shoot a ton, but hey, if he can hop out to the corner and just stay out of the way and then block a bunch of shots on defense, that's a pretty interesting player. Uh, the body stuff just hasn't worked out. I do want to push back slightly or maybe just clarify. I think that we do actually know things. I think studying about the prospects can actually really help. And the people who are professionals – definitely do better than the armchair people i i think though that nobody can get ever get perfect right so it's like you're just trying to like it's sort of like gambling and i don't gamble but so i hear you're just trying to get that little edge that puts you above uh you know the house right you're just trying to get to like 54 55 56 percent i feel like that's kind of how it is with the draft too right you're never even going to come close to hitting 100 percent. you're probably even not going to even hit 75 percent, right but can you hit three percent or five percent better than the competition and if you do that enough, uh, it should pay off And with roster building and everything else. A um, couple, couple more here to close, Michael. Joshua writes, as a longtime and dedicated listener, I can't thank you enough for keeping the podcast and basketball topics rolling through this crazy time. I'm an administrator at a middle school, and nothing is sadder than walking into work each day, hearing the ring of students and staff voices, only to realize that they're coming from my mind as I sit in my office alone day in and day out. Being able to turn on your podcast is a friendly island in an ocean of professional loneliness and dejection. Joshua, man, first of all, thanks for keeping it real and just being open and honest about your situation. That one hits, Michael. I don't know about you, but I I am talking to myself at all-time record level highs during the coronavirus crisis. You know, if I'm going on my little nature walks... Now, I'm not using multiple voices to like debate with myself, but certainly I, I get what he's saying, right? It's like every once in a while you just catch yourself having a conversation or, uh, you know, and realizing that, you know, there aren't other people there. And it happens sometimes. Joshua, I'm with you, man. Uh, the kids will be back in school. It's just a matter of when, not if. And that day is going to feel so, so good. So just hang in there. Michael, do you have any, you know, similar psychotic breaks you'd like to share? If I started talking to myself, I'm pretty sure my wife would call the authorities pronto. Uh, So that's not been my problem. But I mean, right now, today, as we record this, it's it's like a torrential downpour in New York City. And even wanting to, you know, I haven't been outside in quite a bit, but if I wanted to even go for a little bit of a stroll, put on my mask, put on my gloves, uh, listen to a podcast, I can't even do that today because uh, it is just pouring outside. So staying indoors, um, it's been just, you know, we're on like week, what, like four or five, it feels like, like. Uh, month 17 might as well be so it's we're all getting a little bit stir crazy so i feel for you joshua 
I feel like you and Joshua after this podcast are over, you guys are going to like link up and then maybe just go on IG live and stream like a little Dido together. (laughs) No tears grown cold. I'm wondering why. Like that song, like, you know, that Eminem sampled. I feel like you're in that mood. He's in that mood. You have a beautiful voice, Ben. Yeah. Professional singer. People have said that. Um, (laughs) Last one. And this is going to be a little bit more optimistic. All right. Kyle from Melbourne writes, Dear Ben and the pod, I hope this email finds you well. In recent weeks, your podcast has given me comfort in moments of real uncertainty, and I truly appreciate you both soldiering on. I wanted to explore in what parts of everyday life does basketball help inspire all of us. Personally, I only need to look at my home office to see how the NBA inspires me. I am currently studying to be a psychologist in Melbourne and in my final grueling year of master's. It is a year of long hours at my desk and a thesis that I find myself wanting to burn. Above my desk, within eyeline, I have two pictures. The first is of the Black Mamba himself. Kobe is pictured off the dribble, staring at a presumably terrified defender. I love this picture. I got it when I was very young and I've cherished it for years. It sits in reminder, now more than ever, of the power of hard work and the need for nothing less than pure devotion to mastering your craft. Whether it be therapy or basketball, it makes me want to be the best at what I do, and it inspires me to be great one day. The second photo is of Vince Carter. Vince is midway through his iconic between-the-legs dunk from the 2000 All-Star Weekend, and it's a tremendous photo. It's a moment that is truly awe-inspiring. But what inspires me most about Vince is not this basket, but the grind that he has displayed over the last four decades of basketball. I do not see any greater achievement than reaching the apex of your field and then having the courage to allow others to pass you by with a willingness to take on a new role that allows you to contribute in new ways. I too hope one day that I will age like Vince Carter. I would love to hear how basketball inspires you guys um, in other parts of your life. I legitimately believe the NBA and its role models are going to make me a better psychologist, and I'm sure I'm not alone. Michael, that's a brilliant email. Honestly, we could probably do an entire podcast uh, about this email, and maybe we will sometime. But give me maybe just your number one basketball inspiration, if you have one, the, the maybe the first name that you think of when you hear an email like that. Uh, and do you relate to what he's saying? I think a younger version of myself related to everything he's saying for sure. And I don't want to diminish Kyle's question at all because I think it's really important for people, particularly young people, to see NBA players as sources of inspiration in their everyday lives. I mean, these guys have overcome countless obstacles to get where they are, and uh, there are just so many incredible stories out there. So uh, in addition to having two awesome photos uh, up at your desk, this is uh, a really really uh, a great email to close out on um for me personally like honestly the closest i come maybe it's because i talk to these guys the players quite often and it's just it's a part of my professional life more than it's ever been but let me step in and save you you can't exactly idolize a guy you're writing about right so it's a slightly different relationship kyle from what you're describing because like with vince carter um, he can mean a lot to you and he can mean a lot to Michael. But if the relationship is like, I dream of being like you because of your longevity. And now I have to like objectively write a story about how well you're performing at age 40 is really difficult to square that. And so you mentally, you just have to kind of remove from those feelings a lot as a writer and maybe on a podcast a little bit less, you know, we get a little goofier and we maybe fall in love with certain players or like hype them up and things like that. Or, or in, in my case, rail against them unnecessarily. Right. Um, but 
some of that is more for show. I mean, if you're talking about really the the nuts and bolts of the job, you do have to keep a certain level of emotional distance. Yeah, one hundred percent. But for me, I would I would say, like, <laughs> this is going to sound stupid, but when I'm working out in the mornings, and I haven't been because of the the pandemic and the gym in my building being closed, but usually before all this, I would get up pretty early, go to the down to the gym, step on the treadmill first thing in the morning, and on the TVs in front of me would usually be Sports Center uh, playing highlights from the previous night, NBA highlights. And no matter how tired I would be, like from the jump, just going through my run or my morning jog or whatever, uh, I would look up at those guys and see them in like minute 35 of an NBA game and see just how tired they must be. And I would go for another five, 10 minutes on the treadmill. So that's like the, <laughs> this is like the stupidest thing I can come up with. But like, no, I, I like that. You're being your own tips. Is that what's happening? Basically, yeah. That's a, that's a good way to put it, yeah. That's amazing. Um, everyone knows my answer to this question is going to be Michael Jordan, so I'm going to spare you another two-hour-long <laughs> riff about him. Um, I, the, the part of this that I really identified with, Kyle, is this notion of whose characteristics do you wish that you kind of had or that you wish you could embody? And for me, I know he's kind of had a lot of chapters, and it's not all positive and anything else. Uh, especially recently, but the guy is actually Magic Johnson. And the reason why I say that is so much of what I'm trying to do with this show and with uh, my writing is spreading the joy of the love of the game and trying to just make sure that people who also love it realize that that love is being reflected somewhere. You know, I try to take this stuff seriously for sure. Uh, You know, as a newspaper writer, it's not like I'm, you know, writing the the kind of zany and and bloggy, uh, you know, stuff that I might have been writing when I was younger, uh, just a different tone and a different voice. But certainly the commitment level that I try to bring to what I'm doing is out of a love for the game. And I think that magic embodies that basically as well as just about anyone. Um, There is a personal connection. My dad went to Michigan State at the same time that magic did. The level of excitement around magic for that school, for the community in Lansing, for the entire state of Michigan they still talk about him decades later. You know, that's their guy, always will be. Um, the the pure joy and the smile throughout the Lakers uh, time period where he's hugging Kareem after the first game when Kareem hits that crazy skyhook, when he's leading them to the Showtime titles, going head-to-head as a respectful competitor against Larry Bird and Isaiah Thomas, kind of doing things the right way. Of course, the HIV scare and how personally that touched so many different people Um, is a chapter of his story that, um, you know, for him to approach that uh, over the next 30 years as something that he could use as kind of a platform to, um, again, educate and inspire people uh, is pretty incredible. And the thing really more than than anything that I always go back to is charisma. I mean, there's certain people, whether it's Obama, Magic Johnson, you know, like these elite kind of leaders in, in their fields in society have this ability to make others around them feel like the star of the show, right? Feel like it's the super important person. They just leave you feeling warm and fuzzy. And it doesn't matter how cynical or how detached you are as a writer. Like if you spend basically any time in Magic's orbit, you're going to get sucked in because his charisma is just that high. And, you know, maybe it's not true for Celtics media members. Maybe they're able to put up, uh, you know, certain guards against him. Uh, I was waiting for that. 
Yeah, but I know for a fact a lot of people are just like, look, like I understand that we got to knock Magic for how he's handled the Lakers the last two years. But, you know, man, this guy is an incredible communicator, incredibly likable, and he, and he just puts you in a good mood with his personality. So to me, that's a guy who I view as being, uh, you know, particularly inspiring. And like, you know, if, if we had more Magic Johnsons in the NBA right now, like the game would just grow and there will never be another like him. Um, but certainly, like, I ask myself a lot, you know, can you be a little bit more like magic? You know, it's not like this is a daily morning affirmation that I go through. But like every once in a while, you're like, all right, you're being a little too much of a jerk here. Like, you know, just lighten up, you know, be a little bit nicer, uh, you know, try to find the uh, the lighter side of life and, and things will go a little bit better for you. All right, Michael, we've reached the end of another episode of Open Floor. Guys, you can check us out on Apple Podcasts by searching for Open Floor. That's two words. When you find our page, scroll down. It will say rate and review, tap five stars. It's just that easy to help us spread the word. Michael is on Instagram and Twitter at Michael V as in Victor Pina. I am on Instagram at Ben.Golliver, on Twitter at Ben Golliver. Be sure to check out my Washington Post newsletter. Go to my Twitter page. The sign-up link is right there. Guys, email us. Let us know who inspires you from a basketball standpoint. Let us know what would you do if you were the Utah Jazz. Uh, let us know anything else we talked about today that you love, hated, maybe your biggest uh, you know draft wins, your biggest draft losses, and why. I'd love to hear them. Openfloormail at gmail.com. Openfloormail at gmail.com. Hey, Michael, until later this week, I will talk to you. Talk soon, Ben.